0: There's certain things that a man should expect when he chooses the path of an outlaw. It ain't a glamorous life, not by a long shot. Cold, lonely camps, constantly on the run, constantly looking over your shoulder, not ever really being able to trust anyone. And always, in the back of your mind, is that realization there's no easy way out. This life only ends in one of two ways. Behind bars or at the end of a rope. Or just shot down like a dog. But that's life on the hoot owl trail. You accept it. You are what you are, and it is what it is. But what nobody ever tells you is what happens after, especially if a couple of frontier sawbones get a hold of your body. They say if you really want to understand where a person is coming from, you need to walk a mile in their shoes. But what if those shoes are made from human skin and adorned with nipples? Yes, nipples. Join me today as we delve into the life and afterlife of Wyoming outlaw Big Nose George. My name's Josh, and this is the Wild West Extravaganza. George Big Nose Parrot was born in France, not far from the border of Switzerland, in the year 1834. Parrot. (laughs) His last name was Parrot. Unfortunate yet appropriate, as he himself did possess a beak more fitting for the face of a parakeet than an outlaw. I should note, however, that we don't know for sure what his actual name was, or if he was really even from France. George's early life is a bit of a mystery, and being a criminal and all, he would go by several different aliases, and even at one point claim Ohio as his place of birth. Not much of an improvement over France, if you ask me. Still though, most sources do list France as being his homeland, and since I like the idea of a cowboy hat wearing Pepe Le Pew, running around with an uppity French accent, that's what we're going with. Like I said, the dude's life is a mystery, and as tempting as it was to go down that rabbit hole and try to find out all the juicy details of George's early life, I restrained myself. Let's face it. When it comes to George Parrott, it's not his life that was the most interesting aspect of the man. Nor was it his big-ass nose. No, it was what happened to George after his death. It's really intriguing. Still, though, his life, what little we do know, is worth looking at. But that said, let's take a glance at George the Outlaw. As far as I can tell, Big Nose first pops up on the radar in August of 1878, when he and his colleagues bungled a train holdup not too far east of Medicine Bow, Wyoming their exact target being a Union Pacific car hauling cash for the company payroll. Now this gang in question consisted of George, his nose, Frank McKinney, Sim Jan, that's S-I-M-J-A-N, Joe Manuse, John Sandy Wells, Tom Reed, John Irwin, Frank Toll, and Dutch Charlie Burris. Sim Jan, the one with the coolest name in my opinion, was supposedly the boss. The brains of the outfit, however, was evidently nobody. These bandits had the genius idea to wrap a loosened railroad spike with a telegraph wire, then hide in the brush with the intentions of yanking on the wire, thus dislodging the rails, which would then derail the train. Regrettably for the would-be robbers, Union Pacific employees soon came along in a hand car, noticed the loose spike, and actually got out and repaired it, and then just went along their merry way. Now Big Nose and his bunch were watching them the entire time, and McKinney even wanted to open up fire and kill the two dudes. George and fellow gang member Frank Toll, however, protested, saying that they weren't there to kill section men. I guess the idea was they were just working stiffs doing their jobs. And besides, there's no profit in murder just for murder's sake. The flip side to that is is that dead men tell no tales, which is exactly what the damn railroad employees did as soon as they got to the next town. Soon enough, a couple of law enforcement officials came to investigate. A deputy sheriff, Robert Widowfield, and Union Pacific detective Henry Tip. Vincent, and you have no idea how much I want to call him Henry, just the tip, Vincent. Anyway, the duo tracked the bandits down to their hideout at Rattlesnake Canyon at the base of Elk Mountain, even found their still smoldering campfire. Story goes the Widowfield placed his hand over the fire, commented to his partner that it was still hot, and that they would likely find the outlaws by nightfall. And as soon as he stood up, he was shot dead, a single bullet to either his head or his neck. Henry, just the tip Vincent, still mounted, spurred his horse and attempted to escape. But he was boxed in and just blown out the saddle. Rising to his knees, he did try firing back, but he was just too exposed and outgunned. Dead in a matter of moments, just riddled with bullets. The killers took the weapons and anything else of value off the dead law dogs before covering their bodies with brush and moving on. Couldn't even afford them the decency of a shallow grave. By the way, this double murder was, according to multiple sources, the first time law enforcement officials were ever killed in the line of duty in Wyoming. Following the ambush, the Union Pacific Railroad put up $1,000 for the apprehension of those responsible, a reward that soon doubled to $2,000, or over $50,000 in today's money. If you Google Big Nose George, you'll see a lot of sources claiming that it was a $10,000 reward that doubled to 20000 but I'm calling bull butter on that one. Jesse James, arguably the most wanted man back in those days, had 10000 on his head, and the railroad really hated Jesse. I just don't think there's any way those stingy tycoons are going to offer up that kind of money for some nobody like Big Nose George. Also, there are some wanted posters for Parrot, and assuming they're real, which I'll admit is a big assumption, they too only list the reward as one or $2,000. Either way, the stakes were raised, and pretty soon some very dangerous men began hunting after Big Nose and the boys. The gang would remain elusive, however, splitting up and lighting out for safer pastures. A few, like George, would head up to Montana. Some would go to Canada, while others would hit up the Black Hills. Which brings us to Frank Toll, the first of the gang who ended up biting the dust. Just a month after helping George kill those two deputies, Frank himself was shot dead attempting to rob a stagecoach outside of Deadwood. John Irwin, who I only found listed as a member of the gang on one source, was a bit luckier. He was with Toll during the botched stage robbery and, when arrested, confessed to his role in killing Widowfield and Vincent. And I say lucky because instead of getting lynched, he only got life in prison. Sim Jan, Frank McKinney, Joe Manuse, Jack Campbell, and John Wells all sort of disappeared to history, or so it seems. Although there is some speculation about Sim and Frank, which I'll get to later. So now all we're left with is Big Nose George and Dutch Charlie Burris. These two bad boys ended up robbing a general store in Montana at gunpoint and, thus provisioned, traveled north, trading some of their ill-gotten whiskey to Native Americans for horses. Once they arrived at Fort Benton, they sold the steeds and kept on moving. And bragging. It appears that George and Dutch Charlie just could not keep their damn mouths shut. Now at some point, they split up as well and Charlie got himself arrested. Either in very late 1878 or early 1879. Arrested and put on a train bound for Rawlins, Wyoming. Ironically, it was the very same train that he and the boys had tried to rob back in August of 78. Alas, Dutch Charlie would never make it to Rawlins. When the train stopped to load up on coal in the now ghost town of Carbon, Wyoming, some 45-50 miles west of Rawlins, it was stormed by an angry mob. A mob who wasted no time in dragging Charlie from the train and hanging his ass from the nearest telegraph pole. Remember old Deputy Widowfield? Well, once his body was recovered, he was buried there in Carbon. Charlie, however, wasn't considered worthy to be buried in the same graveyard as the man that he helped kill, so his final resting place, unmarked, lay somewhere outside the boundaries of that cemetery. Legend has it that it was the dead deputy's sister-in-law that kicked the barrel out from under Charlie, although a grand jury later found nobody responsible for the lynching. Imagine that. How much you want to bet some of those on the grand jury were some of the same ones in the lynch mob? George Parrott, old gonzo, big-nosed-looking ass, was still out there, though. Still robbing stagecoaches. He even got so bold as to rob the damn U.S. Army in broad daylight. The actual target in this robbery was a businessman named Morris Kahn who was traveling from Fort Keogh with an escort of 15 soldier boys and a shitload of greenbacks. Somewhere between four dollars to $14,000. All of which ended up in the hands of Big Nose George and whoever was riding with him at this time. Now, This particular score happened just outside of Terry, Montana, by the way. And you know how George B., he just could not stop bragging. He kept getting drunk and flapping his gums and nostrils in various saloons all throughout Montana. Didn't take long for word to trickle on down to Carbon County, Wyoming, and soon enough, the long arm of the law came calling. Once again, sources differ, but it looks like Carbon County Sheriff James Rankin was most likely the guy who finally caught up with George and his nose, arrested him without incident, and put him on a train bound for Wyoming. And just like his old buddy Dutch Charlie, Big Nose George soon found himself in the hands of a lynch mob when the train made a quick stop in Carbon. The vigilantes placed a noose around George's neck and even placed him up on a whiskey barrel. Only this time, nobody kicked. No, it seems that George begged and pleaded and gave such a full confession of his role in killing deputies Widowfield and Vincent that the mob just let him go, figuring there's no way that a jury in Rawlins would find the man innocent. They cut him down and handed him back over to the good sheriff. Of course, George changed his tune once he arrived in Rawlins and pled not guilty. And when he was arraigned on September 13th, 1880, he likely lied and told his lawyer his real name was George Francis Warden and that he was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1843. Now, I assume this is a lie, but who really knows? You know, an article on uh, True West magazine claims that the outlaw's real name was George Manuse. Parrot, Manuse, Warden, where does the truth lie? Who knows? (laughs) Ha, get it? Nose, big nose. Alright, whatever. Uh, In the end, it really doesn't matter. Big Nose George is just Big Nose George. And that's what he'll probably always be remembered as. That said, the wheels of justice move slow there in Rawlins. A jury was sworn in on November 16th of 1880, over a month after he was arraigned. And sure as shit, they did find George guilty. Sentencing this Joe Campbell of the Old West to hang on April 2nd, 1881, over four months after the jury was sworn in. I guess the good citizens of Rawlings, Wyoming, didn't like stringing people up in the wintertime. Either that or they figured the ground would be too damn frozen to dig a grave. Now, George didn't take this sentence lying down. Thirteen days before his scheduled execution, he decided to make a break for it. Using a pocket knife that he was allowed to keep, George was somehow able to slip out of his shackles and hide and wait for the sheriff to make his rounds. Sure enough, when Rankin appeared, George jumped him, bashing the law enforcement officer's head in with the aforementioned iron shackles and knocking him nearly unconscious. Good chance Big Nose would have gotten away with it, too, had it not been for Sheriff Rankin's wife, Rosa. She heard the ruckus and came running, six-shooter in hand, fired a warning shot into the ceiling, and held Big Beak at gunpoint until more help arrived. By this point, the local populace had ran slap out of patience when it came to Parrot. He had already taken part in the murder of two lawmen, and here he had just damn near done for a third. They decided they had waited long enough. The next morning, 30 armed and masked men entered into the jail, and ignoring the sheriff's urgings that they wait for the legal execution date, led Big Nose George out to meet his maker. He'd hang from a telegraph pole after all, just like his old par Dutch Charlie, and in front of an audience of around 200. Now you've heard me describe various hanging methods on previous episodes. A Hanging, if done right, causes the condemned man's neck to break and a near instant death. It's the humane way to do things, in my opinion. But not everybody was good at tying a noose, and not every lynch mob cared too awful much about doing things the humane way. Suffice it to say that George's execution was just as sloppy as his criminal career. Now there's a few versions of what exactly happened, and it's hard to piece them all together, but I'll try. It seems that the first attempt was a failure, either due to the rope breaking or just being too long and sagging enough for George to touch the ground with his feet. The drop wasn't very far, by the way, as they had him standing on a barrel of kerosene. On the second attempt, things didn't go too smoothly either. They gave up on the barrel and found a 12-foot tall ladder to force George up on. Evidently, he got his hands loose and tried climbing from the ladder on top of the telegraph pole or some damn thing, and finally he just begged for the mob to either shoot him or at least let him jump off on his own accord so that his neck would break. Look, George knew he was a dead man. Best case scenario at this point was a quick death. But that didn't work out either, as the incensed mob seemed to want George to suffer. They slowly pulled the ladder out from under him, and George slowly strangled to death. I can't say for sure how long it took him to die, but I do know that some sources claim that they left the body of Big Nose George dangling from that noose for at least an hour. Hell, at one point they lowered him down and a doctor refused to declare him dead, so they just yanked him back up. Whatever the exact details, at the end of the day of March 22nd, 1881, Big Nose George was dead. And you would think that's where I'd go ahead and wrap things up, right? Well, not so with Big George Parrot. His death is only the beginning of this strange tale. Had what I just shared about Big Nose been the entirety of his story, likely none of us would even have heard the man's name. He was just a run-of-the-mill road agent at best, right? Just like his cohorts, even the leaders like McKinney and Sim Jan. Footnotes in history. Names with no beginning or end. Ah, but Big George wouldn't fade from our collective memory so easily. Mostly thanks to a couple of macabre doctors. A pair of real sawbones by the names of Thomas McGee and John Eugene Osborne. Never, and I cannot stress this enough, never trust anybody named Eugene. Write that down. First thing these two quacks did was make a plaster death mask, thus preserving George's colossal snout for posterity. By the way, according to True West Magazine's Marshall Trimble, this was the only death mask ever made of an Old West outlaw, that we know of at least. I did find an article in the Texas Observer titled, Who Were Those Masked Men?, that I will link to in this episode's show notes. Evidently, there's a museum in Midland County, Texas, that claims to have the death masks of Jesse James, Wild Bill Hickok, Clay Allison, Putch Cassidy, and a few others. However, most experts agree that these masks are not the real deal. Next up, McGee and Osborne sawed open Georgia's skull to study his brains. The skull cap, or the top portion of the skull, was given to Dr. McGee's 15-year-old assistant, Lillian Heath. More on her to come. As far as studying the brains goes, it seems that Dr. McGee's wife was, quote, criminally insane, whatever that means, due to injuries from a horse riding accident. I guess the good doctor was curious if he could find something on George's brain that could fix his wife or even, you know, try to figure out what caused George to choose the life of an outlaw. Osborne also may have had ulterior motives when it came to desecrating Parrot's body. Take this with a grain of salt, but supposedly the doctor was on a train that Big Nose once held up. The robbery, of course, delayed the train and caused Osborne to be late to a party. Now, I can see that being a little bit irritating, but it doesn't really justify what happens next. Dr. Osborne, Eugene, began slicing off strips of George's skin from his back, his thighs, and his chest. Epidermis samples he'd send to a tannery to have him turnt into a nice pair of shoes and a matching medical bag. Weird, right? Well, we ain't done yet. Creepy Eugene had a special request for the shoes. Not only did he want them to be a stylish two-tone tan made out of the skin of another human being, but he also wanted the tips adorned with George's nipples. One on each shoe. Wing tits as opposed to wing tips. Hat tip to uh, author Deborah Hufford for that one. Check out her blog, by the way, uh, Notes from the Frontier. She had a pretty good post on Big Nose, including that little clever joke. I'll definitely be returning to her site in the future. Lots of good fodder for this podcast. That's Notes from the Frontier. I'll link to it in this episode's show notes. Wing tits indeed, Deborah. Unfortunately for Dr. Osborne, whoever made those shoes drew a hard line in the sand at adorning them with human nipples. Maybe. That was my initial thought, at least. You know, that whoever was tasked with making the shoes just flat out refused to, you know, put nipples on them. But then I got to thinking, maybe nipples don't hold up too well to a good tannin. And how exactly would that work anyway? You know, would they be stretched out flat and tight or filled with some sort of substance to stand erect like little buttons? And how big are the nipples in question? We talking normal man-sized nipples or are we talking Joe Rogan in an ice bath nipples? Or how about Farrah Fawcett nipples, huh? Oh man, I, I came across a Playboy featuring uh, Miss Fawcett when I was around 11 or 12 years old. And let me tell you, those nipples are permanently burned into my brain. Those bad boys are so long, I believe a damn bird might perch up on them, you know, if she were to walk around without a shirt on. The nipples are so long, they show up 15 minutes before she does. All right, though, that's neither here nor there. The important thing is that Dr. Crazy Ass Osborne did receive his skin loafers, sans nipples, unfortunately, which he did wear when he was inaugurated as the damn governor of Wyoming in 1893. The governor. The dude also went on to become Assistant Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson, proving the fact that only debauched degenerates serve in politics. But you already knew that, didn't you? Nipple Shoes weren't Osborne's only wacky idea either. When the Panama Canal was finished, he tried to secure the remains of Christopher Columbus so they could be placed on a battleship to travel across the Channel as part of the opening ceremony. far as Big Nose George goes, everybody kind of, sort of forgot about him. The long arm of the law soon put an end to rampant banditry of the 1870s and 80s there in Wyoming, and the state settled down. Roads were paved, indoor plumbing was installed, and homes were magically lit with electricity. Even Dr. Osborne lived a good long life, eventually passing away in 1943 at the age of 84. Progress even came to the small metropolis of Rawlins, Wyoming, whose population had blossomed to include over 7,400 souls by the year 1950. The same year that construction was begun on a new bank. Construction that led laborers to make a grisly discovery. Buried in the ground was a whiskey barrel whose contents included human bones, half a skull, and you guessed it, a pair of leather shoes. There was an investigation, of course, and the locals accurately assumed that these remains were those of the fabled Big Nose George. Remember Lillian Heath, that 15-year-old medical assistant that was given the top half of George's skull? Well, she was still alive in 1950, at 85 years of age, and she still had the skull cap. She brought it in, and it did line up perfectly with the rest of the skull found in the barrel. Thus, authorities were able to positively identify the remains. That top portion of the skull had been used over the years as an ashtray, by the way, <laughs> as well as a doorstop and even a small flower pot. Lillian Heath was pretty interested in her own right. After George's untimely death, she went on to become the first female physician in the state of Wyoming, and lived another 11 years after Georgia's remains were discovered. Passed away in 1962 at the age of 96. What a life, man. Lived in Wyoming in the 1870s back when you could still get scalped if you ventured too far off on your own. She was there for the Old West outlaws and lived long enough to see the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. When asked how well she was accepted early on as a female doctor, she replied, quote, Men folks received me cordially, but women were just as catty as they could be, end quote. As far as I can tell, Big Nose George never did receive any sort of proper burial. However, if you'd like to pay the man a visit and show your respects to a real-ass outlaw, he can be found at the Carbon County Museum there in Rawlins, Wyoming. Part of him, at least. They've got George's death mask on display, as well as those shoes. Skullcap may or may not be there. Uh, At one point, it was being held at the Union Pacific Museum in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So if you're dead set on seeing an ashtray made out of a bandit skull, Maybe go ahead and call him first to make sure it's available. As far as George's nipples are concerned, I don't know where they are. Sorry. So earlier, I very briefly mentioned Jesse James in regards to Frank McKinney and Sim Jan, you know, George's old buddies. Well, when George was locked up there in Rollins, he made the claim that those former compadres were, in fact, Frank and Jesse James. Do I buy it? No, I do not. Just like I don't really buy George's claims of being born in Ohio. And I'm not aware of either of the James boys spending time in Wyoming either. However, they did stay in McKinney, Texas for a spell back when they were gorillas under Quantrill. Frank James, McKinney, Texas, Frank McKinney, hmm. So whatever, make of that what you will. Now, with all this talk of big noses, you're probably curious how big George's nose actually was. Big enough that legend states when they initially tried to bury him, you know, before the doctors got a hold of his body, the casket wouldn't shut because his nose got in the way. Now, that's obviously not true, but I couldn't help but think of another Old West legend named Big Nose. Doc Holliday's girlfriend, Big Nose Kate. I've looked at pictures of her both as a young lady and as an older woman, and her nose looks pretty average. Matter of fact, the younger pictures of Kate portray a very attractive woman. One theory as to why she was known as Big Nose was because she had a habit of sticking her nose into other people's business. But judging by the one known picture of George, plus his death mask, he did literally have a pretty big nose. Damn thing looks like a natural canopy. Looks like the dude could smoke a cigar in the rain with both hands tied behind his back. All jokes aside, though, it's not the end of the world if you've got a big nose. I got a big one myself. And according to a recent study, it might actually be a very good attribute to possess. So all you two can Sam lookalikes, listen up. A survey published in Basic and Clinical Andrology may have found a connection between the size of a nose and the size of a penis. I'm no doctor, so I won't bore you with all the details, but surgeon Anthony Young claims men with larger noses tended to have larger than average tallywhackers, and that there seems to be a direct correlation. I will link the study in this episode's show notes. So if you've got a little bit of nostril domus action going on, you know, if if anybody's ever accused you of breathing up all the air... You know, maybe you start showing people this study and ask them what the damn deal is, okay? All right, y'all. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with somebody. And if you're really feeling froggy and you got some sort of value out of this episode, you can always buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Also, you can just click on that little yellow coffee icon to the left of my website. Shout out to Ralph, Evan, and Bob, who recently were very, very generous with their donations via Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you. You guys, along with my supporters on Patreon, cover the cost of this podcast every month, so it is very much appreciated. Thanks to Bill as well, my most recent supporter on Patreon. If you've got any suggestions, comments, complaints, or you just want to say what's up, please email me at wildwestextra at gmail.com or click on that contact button in my website, wildwestextra.com. This episode, by the way, was a listener suggestion. I had not previously heard of Big Nose George until Adam J. emailed me with some info. So thank you, Adam. And thank all of you for listening. Thank you for being so patient with me during this hiatus. And thank you for all your well wishes. And I guess that's about all I got for this one. Remember, subscribe wherever you're listening. Because from now on, I will be dropping a brand spanking new episode every other Wednesday. Good Lord willing. All right. Till next time. Try to keep an eye on your nipples. Never know when someone might try to adorn their new Jordans with them. Adiós. I got a big one myself.